Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 115, Crossing the Charles. Hi, I'm Jake. Nikki can't join us this week, so I'll be telling you about the earliest crossings over the Charles River in Boston. When it was founded, the town of Boston occupied the tip of the narrow Shawmut Peninsula, with the harbor on one side and the Charles River on the other. Residents relied first on ferries and later on a series of bridges to connect them with the surrounding towns and countryside. The progression of bridge construction illustrates not only the state of construction technology, but also the birth of corporations in America and a landmark Supreme Court case defining the limits of private property rights. But before we talk about Boston's Charles River crossings, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Planning the City Upon a Hill, Boston Since 1630, by Lawrence W. Kennedy. Published in 1994 by the UMass Press, this book is a tightly packed introduction to Boston's history of urban planning over nearly 400 years. The book makes it into our episodes as a source fairly frequently when we're talking about development or infrastructure. We've consulted it when talking about annexation, the first subway, even the industrial motherbrook, and we quote it briefly this week as well. It's written as an engaging narrative that encourages the reader to keep going, and it's surprisingly well illustrated for an academic work, with not only data tables, but also copious historic maps, photos, and engravings. Here's how UMass describes the book. The focus of this study is on the changing role of local government in city planning. Boston's municipal government holds the primary responsibility for guiding the growth of the city. The city's political leaders have always needed to work with partners in the private sector, and in the 20th century have found it increasingly necessary to cooperate with federal and state agencies as well. Although the roles played by the federal and state governments, like that played by the private sector, are crucial to the story of Boston, the author considers them in relation to city government. Planning the city upon a hill is not, then, a comprehensive account of all planning done by government agencies, but an attempt to examine the process of planning and uncover some of the patterns at work. Planning Boston has been a sustained activity for nearly four centuries. This study is the story of the continuous evolution of both an idea and a city. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a lunchtime author talk at the Boston Athenaeum on Tuesday, January 22nd. Jane Brocks wrote the book Silence, a social history of one of the least understood elements of our lives, comparing life in a monastery with conditions at one of America's first prisons examining enforced silence as the common ground between the two. As a lifelong introvert, it doesn't sound too bad to me. Here's how the Athenaeum describes the event. Conceived in Benjamin Franklin's Philadelphia home and fueled by the Quaker ideals of late 18th century America, Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary was introduced as a humane alternative to brutal colonial punishments that took place overseas. Inspired by the spiritual practices of the monastery, the penitentiary's early promulgators believed that prisoners could find redemption in silence, wherein God speaks with the soul. But what they neglected to anticipate was the ways in which it could be abused. Although the monastic world served as a moral blueprint for solitary confinement, the monastery housed a silence that was far from the one imposed in the penitentiary. For 20th century monk Thomas Merton, silence was a carved-out space for stillness and contemplation. But as Merton gained renown, even he came up against its structures and questioned his place within it. In juxtaposing these stories from the monastery and the penitentiary, 
Brock's draws fascinating, often startling parallels between the constructs of faith and punishment. Her compelling history prompts inquiries into how silence masks and perpetuates injustice within the prison system, and how we may think the ways in which it is employed in our own lives. Brock's illuminates the place of silence in society as both a means of liberation and oppression, and how the extremes it gave rise to continue to reverberate in our culture today. The talk is free for Athenaeum members and free for guests with the purchase of library admission. It begins at noon, and registration is not required. We'll have a link to the event page in this week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In the earliest days of the town of Boston, it was a small town on a tiny peninsula, only connected to the mainland by a narrow neck of land. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's possible that you may have heard us mention this before. Militia units from around New England streamed into Cambridge and Roxbury to keep the British regulars trapped in the peninsular town of Boston. Boston transformed itself from a tiny town on a peninsula to a sprawling city. It was a small, densely populated city on a tiny, mitten-shaped peninsula. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula that comprised Boston. Before Boston was expanded by filling the salt marshes that surrounded the Shawmut Peninsula. John Winthrop and his Puritan followers settled on the tiny peninsula they called Boston. Back when Boston was a tiny village on the Shawmut Peninsula. The only road leading off the peninsula of Boston. New England militias rushed to surround Boston and trap the British regulars within the peninsular town. When I used to give tours of the Back Bay, I'd often use the night of Paul Revere's ride to illustrate how isolated Boston was at that time. Revere himself rode across the mouth of the Charles River from the north end to Charlestown, while the British troops took longboats from the foot of Boston Common to the Cambridge shoreline. At the same time, courier William Dawes rode out Boston Neck passing himself off to the British sentries as a drunken farmer who had dallied a little too long at the market. After he made it out through the gates, he had to ride through the farmlands and marshes of Roxbury and Brookline before he could finally cross at the Great Bridge in Cambridge, at today's Harvard Square. Revere's route out of town mirrored the earliest means for Bostonians to cross the Charles, established very soon after the town itself was founded. At a court of assistance holding at Boston November 9, 1630, it was ordered that whosoever shall first give his name up to Mr. Governor that he will undertake to set up a ferry betwixt Boston and Charlestown and shall begin the same at such time as Mr. Governor shall appoint, shall have one penny for every person and one penny for every hundred weight of goods he shall so transport. Less than a year later, someone took the governor up on his offer. June 14, 1631, the following entry was made in town records. Edward Converse hath undertaken to set up a ferry betwixt Charlestown and Boston, for which he is to have tuppence for every single person, and one penny apiece if there be two or more. According to an 1899 pamphlet about the history of Boston's bridges and ferries prepared for the Boston Transit Commission, the proceeds generated by the ferry were in 1640 earmarked to support the relatively new college in Cambridge. On the 2nd of November, 1637, the ferry between Boston and Charlestown was referred to the governor and treasurer to be let at 40 pounds per annum, beginning with the 1st of December, and from thence for three years. On the 28th of November, 1637, the ferry was so leased to Edward Converse. At a meeting of the general court held on the 7th of October, 1640, the ferry between Boston and Charlestown was granted to Harvard College. As Boston grew rapidly during the Puritan Great Migration period, there was quickly more traffic than the ferry could handle, 
and it was headed in different directions than straight across the mouth of the river to Charlestown. As more and more people had business in Watertown or Cambridge, a route had to be laid out similar to the one that William Dawes would follow over a century later. As William Marchione wrote in his book, Boston Miscellany, By 1662, traffic on the Roxbury Highway had grown to such an extent that a bridge was needed, to be known as the Great Bridge, the largest public works project yet undertaken in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Great Bridge proved difficult to build and even more difficult to maintain. The original span, supported by hollow logs filled with stones, was swept away by a flood in 1685. In 1690, it was rebuilt on piles, a difficult technique since only hand power was available to raise the weight of the driver. Tradition tells us that as many as 5,000 blows were required to propel some of the piles to a firm bearing. Because of the heavy costs associated with building and maintaining the Great Bridge, all of the surrounding towns were required to contribute to its support. The Great Bridge was the only bridge across the Charles River Basin before 1786, with the exception of a narrow cart bridge at the basin's westernmost extremity in Watertown Square. This bridge had been built in 1641, and it followed the path of today's Galen Street Bridge nearly exactly. The bridges at Watertown and Cambridge would eventually feature in a revolutionary-era story in the lead-up to the battles at Lexington and Concord. To test how the provincials would react if his regulars marched into the countryside, British General Gage ordered Lord Percy to lead a march out of Boston Neck on March 30, 1775. Having first marched up the river to Cambridge, the 1st Brigade was surprised to see that the locals had pulled up all the planks. Being frugal Yankees, they didn't burn the planks or throw them into the river. They carefully stacked them on the Cambridge side so they could be nailed back in place once the threat was passed. It may have been possible to send a few soldiers across on the support beams to put the planks back in place, but doing so would likely have meant a fight with the local militia. So Lord Percy and the 1st Brigade kept marching on to Watertown. There they were met with an intact bridge, but two cannons pointed at them. However, the local militia, perhaps believing that discretion was the better part of valor, then didn't stick around to man the cannon when the regulars arrived. At that point, the 1st Brigade turned around and marched back to Boston. When the regulars marched on Concord three weeks later, they would no longer believe marching through Watertown or Cambridge to be viable options. Of course, Today's Boston is connected to its neighbors by bridges over the Neponset River as well, but in the 17th century, nobody had considered annexing Dorchester to Boston yet. However, that doesn't mean that the neighboring towns weren't thinking about infrastructure. At a meeting of the Massachusetts General Court on April 1, 1634, a resolution passed stating, Mr. Israel Stoughton hath liberty granted him to build a mill, a ware, and a bridge over Neponset River and it's to sell the alewives he takes there at five shillings. You can hear more about the bridge Israel Stoughton built, along with his mill, which was the first water-powered gristmill in New England, in episode 59. Along with these successful bridges, in those early days of the province, there were also bridge schemes that fell apart. That 1899 pamphlet about the history of the Charles River Bridge, prepared for the Boston Transit Commission, relates one of these aborted plans. From the college records of a meeting on the 7th of April, 1713, it appears that a motion had been made in the general court for building a bridge at the ferry between Boston and Charlestown, and it was voted that the president and treasurer be desired to represent and to insist upon the right which the college hath in and to the profits of the said ferry. 
That vision was still fresh 26 years later, at a Boston town meeting on Friday, May 18, 1739. A petition of Mr. John Staniford presented to the Great and General Court, praying that he might be favored with an order or license from the said court to take subscriptions for the building of a bridge over Charles River, from the westerly part of the town of Boston, to the Honorable Colonel Phipps Farm. In that meeting, the resolution passed, and a committee of seven was appointed to study the prospect of building a bridge. Nevertheless, the project did not progress before a town meeting that fall. Boston, October 11, 1739 The committee to whom was referred the consideration of the petition of Mr. John Staniford are of the opinion that a bridge from the western part of the town of Boston to Colonel Phipps' farm will be a public benefit and therefore that it will be proper for the town of Boston to make no objection to the prayer of said petition. Having endorsed the plan, it was continued twice at 1740 town meetings. Then, residents voted to appropriate money for it in May 1741. The petition of Mr. John Staniford relating to the building of a bridge from Boston to Cambridge over Charles's River being read and debated upon, in answer thereto voted, that when the building of a bridge from Boston to Cambridge shall be undertaken, the town will carry on the affairs so far as to build that part of the bridge which may be convenient to be built on the flats from Boston shore to low watermark, provided that in order to enable them to effect such part of the works, the town can obtain from the great and general court the loan of a sufficient sum of money upon reasonable terms, and also may be entitled to their proportionable part of the incomes of said bridge. Even with the plan approved and money appropriated, the bridge was not built. Perhaps for political reasons, and perhaps for technological reasons, the bridge would not be completed for another 45 years. By that time, Paul Revere's ride had come and gone. Boston had grown rapidly throughout the 18th century, and it had outgrown the capacity of the Charlestown Ferry. Finally, on March 9, 1785, an act of the Great and General Court, our legislature, authorized another bridge project. This time, it would be seen to completion. We're going to read a few passages from this act because there are several key points. First of all, it names the proprietors of the bridge as one of the earliest corporations in the province. An act for incorporating certain persons for the purpose of building a bridge over Charles River between Boston and Charlestown and supporting the same during the term of 40 years. Whereas erecting a bridge over Charles River, in the place where the ferry between Boston and Charlestown is now kept, will be of great public utility, and Thomas Russell Esquire and others having petitioned this court for an act of incorporation to empower them to build the said bridge, and many persons under the expectation of such an act have subscribed to a fund for executing and completing the aforesaid purpose, be it therefore enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives in general court assembled, and by the authority of the same, that the Honorable John Hancock, Thomas Russell, Nathaniel Gorham, James Swan, and Eben Parsons, Esquires, so long as they shall continue to be proprietors of the said fund, together with all those who are and those who shall become proprietors to the said fund or stock, shall be a corporation and body politic under the name of the Proprietors of Charles River Bridge. Then the Act defines in strict terms how the bridge is to be constructed which tells us a lot about what state-of-the-art bridge technology was like in 1785. The said bridge shall be well-built, at least 40 feet wide, of sound and suitable materials, 
with a convenient draw or passageway at least 30 feet wide and at a proper place, with well-constructed substantial piers on each side, and well-planked on the top and sides with plank proper for such a bridge, and the same shall be kept in good, safe, and passable repair. That also tells us that the Charles River and the Back Bay were still an important part of Boston's seaport because of the 30-foot-wide drawbridge over the main channel. The act continues, And the said proprietors shall constantly keep the said bridge accommodated with at least 20 good lamps on each side, which shall be kept well supplied with oil, and lighted in due season, and kept burning till 12 o'clock at night. And also at the several places where the toll shall be received, they shall erect and constantly expose to open view a sign or board with the rates of toll of all tollable articles fairly and legibly written thereon in large or capital letters. And the draw shall be lifted for all ships and vessels without toll or pay, except such as usually pass under Cambridge Bridge and those passing for pleasure. So the Act prescribes a drawbridge with streetlights and toll booths, and it lays out both the tolls for anyone crossing the bridge and the way the tolls would be used for the benefit of Harvard, replacing the ferry fares that the college would no longer be collecting. That after the said toll shall commence, the said proprietors or corporation shall annually pay to Harvard College or University the sum of 200 pounds during the said term of 40 years. And at the end of the said term, the said bridge shall revert to and be the property of the Commonwealth, saving to the said college or university a reasonable and annual compensation for the income of the ferry, which they might have received had not the bridge been erected. For Harvard's benefit, the following tolls would be charged. Each foot passenger or one person passing, two-thirds of a penny. One person in horse, two pence two-thirds of a penny. Single horse cart or sled or sleigh, four pence. Wheelbarrows, handcarts, and other vehicles capable of carrying like weight, one penny one-third of a penny. Single horse and chaise, chair, or sulky, eight pence. Coaches, chariots, phaetons, and caracals, one shilling each. All other wheel carriages or sleds drawn by more than one beast, sixpence. Sleighs drawn by more than one beast, also sixpence. Neat cattle and horses passing the said bridge, exclusive of those rode or in carriages or teams, one penny, one-third of a penny. Swine and sheep, four pence for each dozen, and at the same rate for a greater or lesser number. And in all cases, the same toll shall be paid for all carriages and vehicles passing the said bridge whether the same be loaded or not loaded, and to each team one man and no more shall be allowed as a driver to pass free from payment of toll. And in all cases, double toll shall be paid on the Lord's Day, and at all times when the toll-gatherer shall not attend his duty, the gate or gates shall be left open. With the enabling legislation in place, work began on the bridge almost immediately. The 1813 historical sketch of Charlestown by Josiah Bartlett describes how the Charles River Bridge was built, while the construction was still fairly fresh in recent memory. This bridge, which was 13 months in building and considered as the greatest enterprise which had been undertaken in the country, is 1,503 feet long. It has 75 piers, each composed of seven posts of oak timber, driven into the bed of the river and united by cap pieces and girts. The piers are connected with string pieces, which are covered with four-inch plank. The bridge is 43 feet wide, with a railed way on each side for foot passengers. It has a draw 30 feet wide, 
and is accommodated with 40 lamps. The depth of the water in the channel on high tides is about 40 feet. If that's accurate, then the builder stayed very true to the specifications set down in the act authorizing its construction. The grand opening of the bridge was time to coincide with the 11th anniversary of the Battle of Bunker Hill. The 1899 Transit Commission pamphlet quotes a subsequent edition of the Massachusetts Sentinel to describe what that opening day was like. Saturday last was observed as a day of rejoicing, occasioned by the proprietors opening the new bridge over Charles River. This commodious and handsome structure is 1,470 feet in length and 42 feet wide within the railing. This bridge has been completed in 13 months and whilst it exhibits the greatest effect of private enterprise within the United States, is a most pleasing proof of how certainly objects of magnitude may be attained by spirited exertions. The design of opening the bridge on the 17th of June, it was natural to suppose, would combine the most agreeable sensations, and it's certain that but few were disappointed. A huge parade was planned, marching from the old State House, which of course was then just known as the State House, down to the river, across the bridge, and up to Bunker Hill, with great pomp and circumstance, as the sentinel continued. The company invited moved in procession from the State House precisely at one o'clock. Thirteen cannon were discharged from Copps Hill while they were passing the bridge. It's computed that at least 6,000 people, besides horses and carriages, were upon it at the same moment. No one that remembered the confusion and horror with which the Battle of Bunker Hill was attended the town of Charlestown in flames, and all assistance precluded by the astonishing fire of artillery, the movements of the hostile armies with their dreadful apparatus, the fatal crackling of the musketry, the wounded and dying carried off by their friends, and the apprehension seated on every brow lest the final period of American liberty had approached, could be an uninterested spectator of the joyous scenes which were now everywhere presented. The streets, the windows, and eminences in the neighborhood of the bridge swarmed with spectators to the amount of at least 20,000, and the ladies were particularly attractive. An elegant dinner for 800 persons was provided at the expense of the proprietors. Joy crowned the day, and in the evening the lamps were lighted on the bridge and produced not only a happy effect on the eye, but were very useful in directing the steps of some of the votaries of the rosy deity who returned to town between 10 and 11, with a band of music before them, inspired by the collective pressure of the scene, but above all, by the generous drafts they had taken to commemorate this auspicious occasion. That very day, Lucy Cranch wrote a letter to her Aunt Abigail Adams, who was living in London during John's tenure as America's first ambassador to Great Britain. Having attended the grand opening of the bridge, Lucy seems to have been quite smitten. You, my aunt, have given me an account of a ball— I will endeavor to give you a description of the parade at the opening of Charlestown Bridge. If I had your descriptive pin, I might give pleasure. I am sure you would have felt as much interested in it as you do at a birthnight ball. It was on the 17th of June, the anniversary of the day which beheld Charlestown in flames. Sister and I went to town to see. The proprietors of the bridge invited each branch of the legislature, the governors of the college, the clergy, the lawyers, and a large number of gentlemen besides, to an entertainment on Bunker Hill, on the very spot where the memorable battle was fought, and where the military glory of our country began. We went to Charlestown in the morning that we might have a full view of the procession. It went from the State House in Boston. The appearance most pleasing to me 
was that of the artificers who had been employed in the bridge. They walked directly after the artillery, each of them carrying one of the instruments they had used in forming that stupendous work. What a striking contrast to that day eleven years when every mechanic threw down the harmless instruments of industry and caught hold of the sword and rushed impetuous to the fight. After the artificers followed the proprietors, then the governor, lieutenant governor, council, senate, representatives, etc., etc., to near a thousand gentlemen who dined upon the hill. When the procession came down to the draw, which was then first passed, the cannon were fired and the bells rang. After dinner, thirteen toasts were drunk as usual, and a number of patriotic songs were sang accompanied by a band of music. The one composed upon the occasion I will enclose to you. I never saw such a vast crowd of people in my life. They poured in from every part of the country. The bridge looks beautiful in the evening. There are forty lamps on it. Cousin Charles and my brother were with us. Mr. J.Q.A. is too much of the philosopher and student to be at such a frolic. It could not draw his steadiness aside. We sometimes fear he will injure his health by his very great attention to his studies. He is determined to be great in every particular. Her cousin J.Q.A., future president John Quincy Adams, was exactly the same age as Lucy Cranch. However, when he was just a few days short of his eighth birthday, his mother had taken him to the top of Penn's Hill in Braintree, on June 17, 1775, where he watched the British artillery bombard American positions on Bunker Hill. In a letter 71 years later, he said, I saw with my own eyes those fires, and heard Britannia's thunders in the Battle of Bunker's Hill, and witnessed the tears of my mother and mingled them with my own at the fall of Joseph Warren, a dear friend of my father, and a beloved physician to me. That experience would lead him to a lifelong sensitivity about Bunker Hill and later in life he would make a point of skipping the annual commemorations of the battle. When he wrote to his mother Abigail with his own account of the bridge's opening, he was not as enthusiastic as Lucy Cranch had been. This day, the bridge between Boston and Charlestown was completed, and entertainment was given upon the occasion by the proprietors to 600 people on Bunker's Hill. It is the anniversary of the famous battle fought there. It is better to be sure that oxen, sheep, calves, and fowls be butchered than men. And it is better that wine should be spilled than blood. But I do not think this was a proper place for reveling and feasting. The idea of being seated upon the bones of a friend, I should think, would have disgusted many. Such feelings may be called prejudices, but they are implanted by nature and cannot, I think, be blamed. You will see in the papers how the poets have been exerting their talents upon the occasion. I have seen five different sets of verses, not one of which has escaped the simile of the phoenix rising from its own ashes, applied to Charlestown. He repeated most of those sentiments in his diary, and he added a note explaining what was really going on when his cousin believed him to be too much the philosopher to attend the party. All the tutors were gone, so that we had no prayers in the afternoon, and there were not more than thirty persons in the commons. For my part, I did nothing all day in consequence of it. I went looking, but I couldn't find one of the Phoenix similes from June 17th that John Quincy referenced. However, this July 4th oration delivered in Charlestown just a few weeks later seems to follow the same form. The sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war are no longer heard in our land. We may now, with the highest satisfaction, anticipate the future glories of these United States and with pleasure behold our demolished towns, like the phoenix from her ashes, rising to our view with improved beauties. 
while the historian records the destruction of Charlestown and the ever-memorable battle on Bunker Heights, he will not be unmindful to relate that from the ruins of the old, a new town is now rising, on a more enlarged and regular plan. Nor will he forget to notice with equal admiration the enterprise and ingenuity of our inhabitants in the rapid construction of the extensive and noble bridge across Charles River, which joins her to this metropolis. May the late sufferings of our friends and neighbors be more than compensated by their future advantages. May the origin of their distress prove the instrument of their growth and prosperity. For about seven years, the Charles River Bridge enjoyed a near monopoly on traffic in and out of Boston. You could ride upriver to the Great Bridge in Harvard Square, or you could take a ferry to Chelsea, but you would probably rather pay a nominal fee and ride or walk right across the river to Charlestown. All that began to change in 1792, when another bridge was proposed for Boston. Eventually known as the West Boston Bridge, this bridge would be much longer than the original Charles River Bridge. The January 7th edition of the Columbian Sentinel carried an advertisement for the new venture. As all citizens of the United States have an equal right to propose a measure that may be beneficial to the public or advantageous to themselves, and as no body of men have an exclusive right to take to themselves such a privilege, a number of gentlemen have proposed to open a new subscription for the purpose of building a bridge from West Boston to Cambridge at such place as the general court may be pleased to direct. A subscription for 200 shares in the proposed bridge will this day be opened at Samuel Cooper's office north side of the State House. The proprietors of the West Boston Bridge were also incorporated by the state and granted a monopoly. Because the business of the Charles River Bridge would obviously be impacted by a new bridge, the legislature extended their original 40-year charter by an additional 30 years. Harvard College would collect a share of tolls from both bridges. An article in the Cambridge Tribune from March 11, 1893, reflected on the 100th anniversary of the act establishing the bridge. The proprietors of West Boston Bridge were incorporated by the legislature of 1792, and the act was approved by John Hancock, then the governor, on March 9th of that year. By this act, the proprietors were empowered to build a bridge and causeway from the westerly part of Boston, near the so-called Pest House, to Pelham's Island in Cambridge and were also required to make and maintain a good road from Pelham's Island aforesaid to the Cambridge Road, the bridge to be not less than 40 feet wide, to have a footway on each side, railings on the outside of the bridge, and also railings between the footways and the carriageway, and to be lighted with lamps the same distance apart as provided for Charles River Bridge to be kept burning till midnight. Having just retired after serving in the Second U.S. Congress, Declaration of Independence signer and future U.S. Vice President and Massachusetts Governor, Elbridge Gerry was the first person to cross the bridge. An issue of the Columbia Sentinel dated November 27, 1793, celebrated the grand opening. The bridge at West Boston was open for passengers on Saturday last. The elegance of the workmanship and the magnitude of the undertaking are perhaps unequaled in the history of enterprises. We hope the proprietors will not suffer pecuniary loss from their public spirit. They have a claim on the liberality and patronage of the government, and to these claims, government will not be inattentive. Another witness to the opening described it as a magnificent structure. It was erected at the expense of a company incorporated for that purpose and cost $76,700. The causeway on the Cambridge side was begun July 15, 1792, the woodwork April 8, 1793. 
The bridge was opened for passengers November 23, 1793, seven months and a half from the time of laying the first pier. It is very handsomely constructed, and when lighted by its two rows of lamps extending a mile and a quarter, presents a vista which has a fine effect. It stands on 180 piers and is 3,483 feet long. The causeway is 3,344 feet, and the distance from the end of the causeway to the first church in Cambridge is 7,810 feet. It's 40 feet wide, and it's railed on each side for foot passengers. The sides of the causeway are stoned, capstaned, and railed, and on each side there is a canal about 30 feet wide. In 1828, Construction began on yet another new bridge across the Charles. The Warren Bridge was almost right next to the original Charles River Bridge, and the owners announced that they would only collect tolls for six years in order to cover their costs, and then open the bridge to the public for free. As you might imagine, this proposal was more popular with the public than it was with the proprietors of the Charles River or West Boston bridges. When the new bridge opened, the revenue of the Charles River Bridge fell by over 60%. And the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge sued the owners of the Warren Bridge in a case before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. When the Warren Group won their case before the Mass SJC, the proprietors of the Charles River Bridge appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court in a case that Lawrence W. Kennedy described as a landmark decision in constitutional law that established the principle that charter rights granted by the state were not absolute and exclusive. A new and more flexible outlook on property rights prevailed in the aftermath of this ruling. In Inventing the Charles River, Carl Hagelin gives an overview of the case. The first arguments before the Supreme Court were presented in March 1831, but less than a week later, the court, failing to reach a decision, ordered the case continued. A motion for re-argument was accepted in 1833, but the arguments were not presented. One justice died, and another resigned the following year. Andrew Jackson nominated two new justices in January 1835, and the same month Webster recommended that the Charles River Bridge plaintiffs seek a settlement through the state legislature. In the spring of 1835, Chief Justice Marshall died, and a backlog of 60 cases piled up before Roger B. Taney was confirmed as the new Chief Justice. The Supreme Court finally heard arguments in the Bridge case in January 1837. Simon Greenleaf was granted a leave of absence from Harvard Law School to argue the defendant's case, a milestone in the history of academic freedom since Harvard's financial interests were with the plaintiff's side. Daniel Webster argued for the proprietors that the new charter indirectly destroyed the old. Justice Story wrote Charles Sumner a few days later that the arguments on both sides were quote, "a glorious exhibition for old Massachusetts." Less than three weeks later, the court decided in favor of the Warren Bridge. Story said in a letter to his wife that a case of grosser injustice or more oppressive legislation never existed. I feel humiliated, as I think everyone here is, by the act which has now been confirmed. The Charles River Bridge proprietors were still obligated to maintain the bridge, to tend the draw, and to pay Harvard six hundred sixty-six dollars each year. They petitioned the legislature for release from those obligations and for compensation for the loss of their property. The legislature not only refused to offer compensation, but declined to even study the value of their franchise. The Bridge Corporation responded by raising the draw and closing the bridge. Four years later, in 1841, the legislature approved a bill offering twenty-five thousand dollars in settlement to the proprietors. 
The act also reinstated the tolls for no more than two years to repair the bridge and to compensate the stockholders. In 1847, the legislature granted Harvard $3,333.30 in compensation for the loss of the college's annuity during years when the state had ownership of the bridge. The college's ancient ferry privilege, granted in 1640, was over. In the late 1830s and early 1840s, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was courting his great love, Fanny Appleton. At the time, he lived in George Washington's former Cambridge headquarters on Brattle Street near Harvard Square, while Fanny lived with her parents in Beacon Hill. To court her, Henry would walk across the West Boston Bridge. After seven years of walking across that bridge, Fanny sent Henry a letter on May 10, 1843, agreeing to marry him. Even on that joyful day, he skipped the carriage and walked from his house across the bridge to hers. Reflecting on their courtship later, he wrote a poem in 1845 called The Bridge, which went in part, And like those waters rushing among the wooden piers, a flood of thoughts came o'er me that filled my eyes with tears. How often, oh, how often, in the days that had gone by, I had stood on that bridge at midnight and gazed on that wave and sky. How often, oh, how often, I had wished that ebbing tide would bear me away on its bosom, or the ocean wild and wide. For my heart was hot and restless, and my life was full of care, and the burden laid upon me seemed greater than I could bear. But now it has fallen from me, it's buried in the sea, and only the sorrow of others throws its shadow over me. Yet whenever I cross the river, on its bridge with wooden piers, like the odor of brine from the ocean, comes the thought of other years. And I think how many thousands of care-encumbered men, each bearing his burden of sorrow, have crossed the bridge since then. In a spree of construction from 1900 to 1907, the old West Boston Bridge was replaced by a new span. The new bridge was built out of granite, with pillars resembling salt and pepper shakers adorned with carvings of Vikings. In 1927, that bridge was renamed in honor of the poet who had walked across its predecessor so many times. Today, you know it as the Longfellow Bridge, carrying cars, cyclists, pedestrians, and the Red Line across the Charles River. To learn more about the early bridges over the Charles River, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 115. We'll have all the sources we quoted from this week, as well as historical maps and images illustrating where the bridges were and what they looked like. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and planning the city upon a hill, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.